Ready for the interview And if you get a cue Live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo Let's have a combo Say what you feel Be real, that's the motto Real talk pronto Doctor D, PhD Hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals all right, Cassie. So we were actually just talking about LinkedIn, right? Yes. And it's just different about connecting with people on LinkedIn than, let's say, other platforms with that, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I love how LinkedIn has the power of connecting people and, and you know, you meet people on LinkedIn who want to connect and, uh, and, it's a, such a supportive community. Like everyone wants to help each other and further each other and, you know, find referral sources and things like this. So yeah, I'm glad to have met you on LinkedIn. <laughs> I feel the same way. And I feel like uh, it's the one thing I've kept the entire time, you know, I've had social media. I've, I don't have anything else except for uh, LinkedIn that I use because it has been for the most part, pretty positive. I still get a lot of like spammers and stuff like that. But overall, the connection has really been positive, you know. Yeah, I think the spammers do want to connect with you too. It's <laughs> yeah. just you don't want to connect with them. No, <laughs> no. Well, you know, when like you, I you know get exactly a message, right? About. And the yeah. first thing is like, you know, how how can I help you generate leads and all this stuff? I understand, you know, yes. business, but it's like, maybe not approach me like that. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not my chosen marketing style. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it's most people's chosen marketing style, like or at least being approached. Right. Uh, and yet people are doing it. So it must be working. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I had a guy, a marketing agency contact me this morning and it was good. Actually, he was like, I'm not actually selling anything. I just want to know what's going on in your industry to get some information. I was like, oh, I would do that. I would. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would do that. I would talk to that forward, honest, trying to collect information. I can respect that. Yes, definitely. So I've been tagging you, speaking of LinkedIn, on my Decoding Diet Culture series that I produced. Yes. And uh, I figured, I was like, man, I want to get Cassie in on this, about this I've discussion. Been loving it. Really? That's awesome. Yeah, I was just listening to the seven flags, mm -hmm. uh, red flags of things to look for. And I was sitting there, you know, shaking my head yeah. <laughs> going, yeah. yeah, in a good way. <laughs> right. Shaking my head. Yes, yes, yes. You know, uh, some of the language examples. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that what I love about the series so far is, you know, it's illuminating um, what people need to know because so much of this diet culture stuff we take as face value. It's, you know, the air we breathe, the water we swim in. And yeah. until someone points out to you and says like, actually, this is kind of messed up. Yeah. Um, and then you think about it and it's like, oh yeah, totally. But so I've appreciated your series bringing light to some of these issues and then the practical, you know, seven red flags. I mean, we can all practically go forward yeah. and implement that and, and look for, you know, clean eating or whatever. The oh man, we're going to talk about that with you. I, as an RD, I'm sure you have, lots I have of some thoughts takes on that, but yeah, thanks for listening. I'll keep tagging you. It's, it's eight episodes. Uh, I was, it's a, it was a big project to do. And it took several months to come together with all of the music and transitions and stuff. Yeah. 
the sound design is on point. Like, <laughs> I noticed that. I was like, he's not messing around. Like, no. This is, this is good. Yeah. When I do a project, it's like all in. And I want the listener from the first time they press play to be like, what is this? Yeah. Like, and I think you'll see like episode four is tomorrow. And it starts out with a commercial spoiler preview starts out with a commercial from like 1957. Oh, I love that. And those are hilarious. They're so like, so they're like, yeah. Wow. This is so crazy bad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite um, podcasts that I listen to is don't ask Tig with comedian uh tig nataro yeah and it's an advice and sometimes she she so she has guests on and she reads advice and sometimes she'll read advice columns from like the 1920s or the 1930s and like what people ask for which is always really weird and then like what what the response was you know it's i agree with you like hearing back to how things used to be is both fun and you know scary and kind of creepy at the same time so the back half of the series has a few of those things. And I wanted to kind of highlight that of like, this is, this is not a new thing. Yeah. This has been going on forever. And then getting people to have their own little stories about diet culture and stuff. So I wanted to make it sound really professional and then have like the last part be all the things you can digest uh, for that. But speaking of digesting, we're going to digest some language here. Are you like that segue there? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, that was a good segue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so language is one, I think that's really critical about this diet culture. So like the word clean, mm-hmm. tell me is your background. Well, first let's get a little background for you. I think the listener is important to know your background in this, and then we'll dive into some of the language like we just talked about here. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian. I Uh, specialize particularly in helping women over 50 who have been damaged pretty significantly by diet culture. I refer to diet culture as all or nothing dieting, you know, speaking Mm. of language and that's that feeling where you either have to eat perfectly or what's the point and how all or nothing dieting blames us for any struggle we might have. It's never the diet's fault. Right. Uh, And so in my work one-on-one with women over 50 who are recovering from all or nothing dieting, I help them recover their courage to trust themselves because what happens after decades of you know, living in this diet culture like we've been talking about, you don't trust yourself around food anymore. You feel like you do not have it within you to make the healthy choice consistently and, you know, as you talked about in the, the series already, how it, it just, our perception of who we are and the food that we're eating and whether it's good or bad and, you know, some of that morality comes into yes. play uh, can be so damaging. And so I work to help people cultivate the courage to trust themselves again. And then I also have another wing of my business where I take this, you know, one-on-one work I'm doing to the masses. And I, you know, do speaking and worksite wellness consulting to help companies really humanize their wellness programs. And remember there's individuals with you know, trauma histories and, you know, different, differing abilities and 
um, really leverage their wellness program to meet some of their corporate goals around retention and engagement as well. And so, you know, I really have a heart for let's remember there's a person um, with unique barriers and struggles behind any of these changes that we're asking people to make. Most definitely. You know, you said something about morality. Yeah. And this is something Aaron Nitschke talks about in our series and this kind of like good versus bad food. Mm -hmm. Can you expand Mm -hmm. upon where we're at with this and why is it so pervasive? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love this. And, you know, it goes back to you mentioning clean, Mm. right? Because clean is going to be connotated with something that is good or better. And what happens with diet culture, all or nothing dieting, whatever you want to call it, right, is you're given a list of foods that are good for you, like kale (laughs) or chia seeds or salmon, (laughs) right? Like I could just, you know, it would almost be funny to sit here and like name the good for you foods, right? Um, Or you have the list of foods that are bad for you, like hamburgers and this, that, and the other. And while, you know, the, the difficult part here is there's so much nuance because it is, you know, empirically true that, a bowl of beans is going to impact your health if that's all you eat oh in a different way than maybe a hamburger would okay for example so you know if you eat hamburgers every day it's likely that's going to have a differing impact on your body and your health than if you eat beans every day right um and i'm not talking about the digestive you know <laughs> impact of that and so and so there's that empirical you know truth there that uh, yes one may be more supportive of health than the other but what happens and that is so harmful is the morality gets brought in to where now you are good if you eat beans and you are bad mm. if you eat the hamburger and that brings in shame and, you know, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. I've read all of her works. And, you know, again, she would define shame as feeling disconnected or believing that you are not worthy of love and connection with other people. And so now our food choices are like this mixing pot of we think we're good. We think we're bad. We think we're unlovable because of our food choices. We think we are less worthy of love and connection because of our food choices. And so that's going to bring guilt. And by the time women start to work with me, they are obsessed and they're thinking about food all the time. They're thinking about their body all the time, and they don't have a lot of mental room for anything else. And that's going to lead to anxiety and some, some quality of life, mental of health effects. So really, I cannot overstate how damaging moralizing food is. And we're not even talking about moralizing bodies. That's a whole different right. conversation. Of course. Yeah, it's, I, it's very devastating. The, the power that words have. It's kind of like one time I was talking to somebody and, you know, obviously you hear this too. I'm going to have a, like a cheat day or something. Yes. And I said, do you know the connotation behind saying you're having a cheat day? So you're implying that it's bad. Mm-hmm. Like you're telling yourself, oh, I get to do something bad today. Yep. And I remember telling this person, they never thought about that. Way. It was like a big light bulb. They're like, oh my goodness. But people just follow along with the, the, the stream of consciousness of society a lot of times with stuff like that. 
Oh yeah. You know, again, and, and what's so interesting is not only is it impacting our mindset and the way that we think about food, but it's literally impacting our biologies to label food bad as well. You can look up research papers on something called forbidden food syndrome. Mm. And this is where, and it's been shown again and again, that if you demonize a food and you say, you know, this is a bad food, it's on your do not eat list, you're never to consume this again, it's actually going to cause more release of dopamine in your brain. And we think of dopamine a lot for pleasure, but it's also involved in motivation and reward. So you've got more of this dopamine motivating you to look for this food, making it feel more rewarding for you to eat it. And, you know, I'll use a real life example. One of my clients, it was Dairy Queen blizzards. I mean, oh, I love Dairy Queen year. blizzards. <laughs> yeah, where everyone loves a good blizzard, right? Man. And that was her food that she rewarded herself with after a hard day. And yeah. you know, that's a whole different conversation, food rewards. Sure. Yeah. Um, but when she said, I'm never going to eat another blizzard again, because blizzards are bad for me. <laughs> again, this all or nothing, right? Yeah. Such big sweeping statements then she, you know, wanted the blizzard even more. And it leads to feeling deprived. It leads to feeling obsessed with food. I mean, and literally it's, it's not just a mental thing. It's biological. You have more dopamine in your brain causing you to go after this food. And if that isn't setting yourself up for failure, when it comes to making changes with food, I don't know what is uh, to, you know, feel obsessed about that certain food. Oh, I did not know about that. Uh, the forbidden food syndrome, like the yes. actual biological connection. Mm -hmm. That's pretty powerful. Actually, the actual increased production of dopamine. That's insane. Actually, right. But it makes and sense. Dopamine, yes, is also involved in addictions. Yes, you know, it's, it's one of the major chemicals in addictions. And so you can see now why people would kind of go on these all or nothing type patterns and then end up feeling like they're addicted to food because this very powerful neurotransmitter is involved in, you know, the same pathways there. It makes so much sense. Talk to me a little bit about, I think for the audience, this will be, I just started thinking about this. I think this hits home about food and kids. And what is the information out there about parents raising children and their approach towards food and how that approach affects them later on in life. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you have that information. Yeah. You know, and I'm not a pediatric specialist um, and I should connect you with some folks because that would be, that would such be a great fun conversation, yeah. but I am a mom. <laughs> I right. am a mom. And so from, from that experience, I can tell, you know, your audience, if they're looking for a good resource, Ellen Satter uh, E-L-L-Y-N-S-A-T-T-E-R. She's got the Ellen Satter Institute. Um, she literally wrote the book on child-parent interactions. And she's got the division of responsibility where she talks about, you know, what is the parent's responsibility when it comes to feeding? What is the child's responsibility when it comes to feeding? And what should your overall point of view or worldview about food be? And, you know, the, the research shows that and, and I know you talked about this as well in your, uh, in your series that kids know what to eat intuitively. Yeah. They stop eating when they're full. They ask for food when they're hungry. And so the best thing we can do as, you know, parents or caregivers of people who love these children to help them set up these healthy relationships with food 
is to teach them to honor their hunger. And, you know, the other thing I love to do is talk about the benefits of food and help my daughter understand from an early age that, you know, her, her chicken and broccoli and brown rice is going to fuel her and give her energy and make her strong, you know, and we don't necessarily say like, oh, the sugar won't, but when she's running around in a circle after eating yeah. a cupcake, like happened the other day, my daughter's three and a half. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, this is a sugar high right here. <laughs> we say, wow, look at all this energy you have from the sugar. <laughs> and so, you know, not demonizing any certain food. And, um, you know, Ellen Satter talks about uh, for dessert, allowing your kids to have dessert, whether it be one portion with dinner or occasionally. Yeah letting them have as much as they want, you know, for a snack so that they don't feel restricted and deprived. And that sets them up to, to be able to eat with equanimity, you know, the, the broccoli and the Brussels sprouts and the jelly beans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I wonder where that turns for people where you stop eating, you stop honoring your hunger and you start kind of catering to the the whims and advice of other things. I wonder where that kind of, I think it about my own life and I don't know, I, I have to really reflect on that some more, but I feel like I have gotten so much better. Like my approach towards eating really changed in like my early thirties, just more of just like, I'm just going to eat when I'm hungry. Basically that's it. Versus before that was an I was a collegiate athlete and all that. So it was like eating was just like constant, you yes. know, which I never liked. I was like, huh, so I'm not even hungry, but I'm just eating all the time, you know, yeah. like, yeah, you needed the calories. I just wonder when that just that starts flipping for people. Is it high school? Is it middle school? That type of things, you know. You know, unfortunately, with the pandemic, uh, I know lo here local Seattle area, I was reading that Children's Hospital was kids as young as seven years old for eating disorders. Oh my God. Um, mm -hmm. wow. I know trigger warning. Sorry, seven, everybody. Sad seven fact. years old. Wow. So in, in they're finding more eating disorders and younger children as a result of the pandemic. And in some ways that makes sense because there's all this stress and, you know, uncertainty and food can sometimes be a way to control stress and uncertainty, you know, for an athlete, it might be, if I can just eat enough calories, yeah. then I'll, you know, I will have the energy I need to win the race for someone else. It might be, if I can just, you know, restrict, then I can finally be, you know, in control of my environment. Um, so it, 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 eating is never just about food, essentially. No, never. And, I think for kids, it, it, it comes in young and looking at what other people have to say about food and their bodies. I know the women I work with, like I said, these high achieving women, uh, middle, middle age and beyond, and they often have stories of, you know, being told from a young age that their bodies had to look a certain way in order for them to find, you know, love someday or for them not to be teased or for people to like them, you know, their bodies were commented on by the people around them and their eating habits were often commented upon. And then the other thing that often comes into play is trauma, you know, and, and I'm not sure if you've had guests on to, to talk about trauma much, 
but recognizing that a trauma history, whether it's big T trauma, like a specific event that occurred or little T trauma, like, you know, maybe something that happened more ongoing and it's harder to exactly uh, put your finger on. Um, but trauma changes your biology as well. And it makes your nervous system more likely to be activated and young children experiencing trauma will often find that food is a comfort. You know, they have a grandparent. I've, I cannot tell you how of many course. stories I've told of grandma who knows what's going on at home and loves the child with food. And so food becomes the safety net. You Grandparents know? are the worst about this. That's, I'm telling you, it's weird. <laughs> I, I get the intention, but man, nothing like breaking your whole deal with grandparents <laughs> like, in a lot of areas. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. They do what they want. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but again, like what we can celebrate there is the fact that food has helped people survive difficult situations and yeah. using food and getting pleasure from food and using food as a way to, you know, numb discomfort, because again, you, it works, you get that dopamine hit, you feel good in the moment and you don't have to deal with the shame or stress or, you know, whatever it may be. And, and so we really have to recognize food works and, and be thankful that it does too, because it helped, you know, we talk a lot about, Ooh, 15, 20 pounds in the pandemic. Okay. But that junk food, right. That you ate helped you survive the pandemic. Yeah. And so I get that we don't, we don't necessarily we want the junk food and it impacted our health and we're not so happy about that and yada yada and yet you know let's be compassionate nice that we are resilient and we are using a coping mechanism that at least in some ways works that's an interesting i don't think i've heard that before it's a of, hot like, take for you it's a hot take i think i mean <laughs> i think you probably get some interesting responses about that uh very interesting like it helped you get through it. And I think there'll be some people who may push back and go, well, don't celebrate that. But I don't think that you're trying to do that. I think you're just pointing out that this is part of a, a cycle of like, this did have some mechanism of help. Um, some but, value. Exactly. And yeah. what I'm trying to do by pointing that out is to get people to be more self-compassionate. Yeah. You know, I mentioned my goal is to help people develop that courage to trust themselves again and pillars to get people there. And this, the first is calming the nervous system. The second is self-compassion. The third is listening to yourself. And the fourth is medical nutritional therapy, which is what I as a registered dietitian can provide. And so self-compassion, going back to pillar number two, is really the best tool towards healing your relationship with food and your relationship with self, which gets yeah. damaged by diet culture and all of the shame that we receive for, you know, our bodies and, uh, and, and what we eat. And really, I mean, self-compassion plus empathy are the two things you need to heal from shame. Yeah. And so you can get empathy from other people, but self-compassion can only come from yourself. And so when you can recognize that your eating patterns have served a purpose and they've been helpful, and maybe instead of being a marker of you being a problematic person who is, has a character flaw and is morally perverse, I mean, really, like it, it sounds extreme, but when we're moralizing food, that's essentially what we're doing. You're, yeah. you're bad for eating food. You're morally perverse, right? So instead of 
speaking that over yourself, which I would say is a lie and it's not helpful. Self-compassion allows you to really see, oh, okay, this was helpful. And how do I want to be kind to myself moving forward? And what does that look like? And it doesn't look like cutting out junk food because that's more of all or nothing guiding. That's more right. Right. It looks like understanding why you chose the junk food or whatever. I mean, I don't even like junk food. That's moralizing, (laughs) but everyone gets what I'm saying. You can go too far with it too. Um, But understanding why you're doing what you're doing and, and, and really getting to the root of that. And so self-compassion allows you to do that. Because rather than just blame yourself, which is what diet culture would have you do, what all or nothing dieting would have you do, you can actually problem solve and take a step back and see, you know, what might be the solution to your eating struggles. I tell you, this is a, like a multifactorial deal. I want to take this somewhere that I think is, I think we need to have this conversation. It was interesting. I'm interested to get your take on this. So there's the side of it, I like to present various points of view because I think it's important. Yes. The side of it, which is in some way, you know, say, hey, this is uh, helped me get through this situation. This could, this has some value in this. Mm-hmm. And then there's another side of that. This is uh, a medical condition and this is not healthy or this is, is going to lead to chronic um, health conditions, uh, yep. chronic disease. But then there's an there's another side of this. There's always more than two sides. Oh yeah. That is almost celebrates eating and and to some extent being uh, in a larger body. Mm-hmm. I I am very conflicted by this mm-hmm. because I think there's a reality of that. If someone to say is let's say obese. Yeah. Okay. There's a reality that this is a cascading effect chronic disease that is not healthy for you. But then there's another reality of like celebrating your body. How do we work through that? Because Mm -hmm. I'm so conflicted. I understand different body sizes and we talk about that. And I want to put all this out there, but sometimes I feel like there's this denial of that. This is a a very difficult medical condition. Like Mm -hmm. you actually have a condition that is not good, but then celebrating your body. I'm conflicted. That's my honest opinion. I'm very conflicted by that. Yeah, I I totally hear you. And I am someone who has spent so much time thinking through these issues and my stance on these issues, because I never, ever, ever want what I'm doing, what I'm putting out into the world to be harmful to someone. And And I have decided that I am okay offering weight loss services as obesity treatment, you know, medical nutritional therapy, like I mentioned the fourth of my pillars. And so I'd I'd love to get into this with you. And I think, you know, the, the first place we have, we get to go with this topic is really understanding individual choice and that everybody has a right to care or not care about their health and their bodies as much as they want to. And so, I mean, especially as Americans, right? Oh, I know. I know. There's a whole other conversation about this. (laughs) Exactly. And, and so, you know, what I think about someone else's body size is 
they, they do not have to care about that. And, and honestly, they shouldn't care about it. Uh, and so I think that's the first place we have to start because in diet culture, we believe that we have the right to comment on other people's bodies and we absolutely don't. And actually commenting on other people's bodies uh, is m- usually harmful. You yeah, know, we even, bring it up. We have some stuff on there. about Good, that. Yeah, yeah. good. Even well-intentioned, right? Yes. It's usually harmful. And so, so first we have to realize, you know, what our individual opinions are, I mean, don't really matter. I get what you're saying. Like you and I were working in this industry. We have to have a stance, but it's, just yes. <laughs> putting it out there. <laughs> And then the second piece is, I don't believe that from my standpoint, again, are we moralizing bodies? Are we moralizing health? Do people have to be healthy in order to be good? You know, in our culture, we've talked about moralizing food. We moralize wellness. We moralize lifestyle medicine and we moralize behaviors. And when we do that, what we don't see is our own privilege and the fact that my neighborhood has sidewalks. So when we're done with this, I can go take a walk, yeah. but not everybody lives in a neighborhood with sidewalks and not everybody has access to food and healthcare and all of these things. And so again, like, I think that's part of the nuance here is like whether or not someone is what you and I would probably define as healthy doesn't make them good or bad. And so, and, and bodies then also are not good or bad in that sense. Um, and then I also, you know, I, I take a lot of nuance with the research, you know, I see what the health at every size people are saying when they talk about, you know, correlation uh, for size and conditions rather than causation between them. And yet there is some good research that, you know, uh, excess body fat is inflammatory and may lead to insulin resistance and may impact health. And so, but I don't necessarily think that making your body smaller has to be the answer. And that's essentially what weight loss is Right. because weight loss is very difficult and it actually, it's, it's not. Uh, it, it really is difficult to achieve. Um, the, the expert statistics are 80 to 98% of diets fail. And it's not because people fail. It's because when you actually do lose weight, your metabolism slows down and you need to eat, you know, between 60 and 120 calories less than you did before you lost weight to maintain. So you can never go back to your old eating patterns. And then you also have to move your body. The National Weight Control Registry shows that people who kept 30 pounds or more off a year uh, walk or, or they move their body the equivalent of walking four miles a day. So it's about an hour of exercise every day. And not everybody can do an hour of exercise every day. I mean, we have to stop and go, yeah, that's a big commitment yeah. uh, to expect people to do. So, you know, if having a smaller body is not necessarily feasible and there's all of this, uh, all of this diet culture nonsense that shames people for living in a larger body. And we're not even talking about feminism and trying to keep women small and quiet. Right, okay. Right, right. Which I could I go into that. I but. know there's a lot of offshoots, right? There's just, it's so much nuance involved in this. And so for me, I, I see all of that and I say, yeah, 
let's celebrate bodies because if we celebrate and are connected to our bodies, then we're going to trust ourselves more around food. We're going to be able to listen to what we need because we're listening to what our bodies need. And that's going to lead to eating well and eating regularly, you know, and doing these behaviors because you care for yourself. And this is what caring for yourself looks like, as opposed to, you know, there's something wrong with you and you have a medical condition and you need to be smaller. So here's what you have to do. And it feels punitive and people are going to rebel against that because we are normal. You know, that's a normal response, I think. That was a very good nuanced answer, (laughs) Cassie. I think that was one a big part of our series that we did is to try to present as many different points of views and understanding kind of the almost the hilarity of the issue, but also the seriousness of it as well. But then it's also hard when you're in 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 the larger umbrella of health and wellness, which we're in. My issue is a lot of back to the language. Health is a very weird word to me. I actually actually don't know what it means, to be honest. I think there's technical definitions, but I don't think they're accurate for that. And then I think the language is so important, even even saying exercise versus physical activity versus movement. They're actually different definitions for that. So I'm always very conflicted because I think you do. You should have the right to behave how you want to behave as long as not harming other people. That's a right that everybody should strive for. But there's also reality that when you're in a condition that actually stresses uh, other things in life, that's also real too. As if you're in, let's say, a hospital setting and clinical settings, and you're seeing people who, you know, maybe there is there is a lot of lifestyle choices too. So it's a choice, but that choice also has consequences. Too. I think that's the hard thing we butt up against in our society is like, yes, we should all have choice, but the, the consequences of choices, those are the difficult aspects. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't want to deal with that. It's like we have something going on and I made this choice. I don't like what the consequences are, but I want to have the choice for that. I just always grapple as a professional with yeah. that. I just do. And, you know, I take it back to this, and this is the self-compassion approach, which is the belief that everyone is doing the best they can. So even the person in the hospital bed who had to get their leg amputated because of uncontrolled diabetes and they didn't take their medication and they didn't change their eating habits, that person is doing the best they can. And, And that's my belief. And so then we have to look at if that person is doing the best they can and were their health care provider, you know, what do we need to do to support them? Because there's something missing here. And yes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? People are making their choices. Uh, And yet, you know, what I think often gets unaddressed are these deeper issues around uh, maybe the impact, again, the impact of trauma. I mean, what I'm seeing, the, the longer I practice and work with people, and the more I hear their stories and understand why they're making the choices they're making is it often comes back to a, a traumatic experience or a traumatic childhood or, you know, something happening in their life that has made them feel unsafe. 
And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like feeling safe is at the very bottom and we can't get to, you know, exercising 30 minutes a day, which I would say is like self-actualized towards <laughs> the top, right? We can't get to that until someone feels safe in their body and their yeah. nervous system is calm and emotionally they're where they need to be. And, you know, I really think on the one hand, the pandemic has been helpful because it has made people see and understand so much more how much mental health is important and really is the building block to, you know, 30 minutes of exercise every sure. day. Yeah. Um, and yet, of course, it's, it's traumatized people further. And so, you know, when I talked about that 15, 20 pounds someone gained from junk food during the pandemic and how that uh, is, is, you know, something that in some ways we can have gratitude for, even if it's not a behavior we want to target, right. uh, you know, as, a, as an outcome, um, we can have gratitude for it because it helped them survive. Well, in order to be able to make consistently healthy choices and not feel obsessed with food all the time, obsessed yeah, with their yeah. body, you know, we have to really heal the the root issue and the impact that trauma has had on their relationship with food. And I find this even with people who have been through years and years and years of therapy, and they're like, you know, right. emotionally, I feel like I'm pretty good. But food is still running wild. Sure. And I've seen in my practice that people get like, I mean, I can't diagnose anybody with PTSD. I'm a dietitian, right. not a therapist, right. but it looks like to me, you know, all or nothing dieting induced or diet culture induced PTSD, where people are, can't get on the scale so much anxiety. They can't go to the doctor because they feel like the doctor is just going to tell them to lose weight, yeah. you know, and, and they feel so much shame around their bodies and their weight. And so the, I think the solution isn't to I guess I just want to hold people with compassion and the belief that they're doing everything they can. And then it's our job as professionals in this industry to get creative and figure out how we can help people. And what I've found in my practice is that calming the nervous system, because you have to feel safe. And if you're in fight or flight all the time, you don't feel safe, you know, self-compassion, listening to yourself and that medical nutritional therapy, those four pillars I mentioned are really the way to get people feeling good enough and being kind enough to themselves and able to problem solve and, 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 you know, connect with their core values and motivation to change. That's not based on what somebody else says, like all of these things are an important part of the process before we even talk about Brussels sprouts. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, you know, I, I also think that most people are doing the best they can. I'm not someone who's like a fatalist about people in general. I've met so many great people as we talked about with LinkedIn earlier and stuff like that, but I do think it's important to under, understand the other side of things as well. It's like, I'm sure you have, met with people who are not doing the best they can. And I think it's important to, I don't think that's a lot of people, but I think there are people who are not doing the best they can. How do you handle that? So I think what you're saying is the people who don't care to change, they don't care to get healthier. They're not interested in that. Is that accurate? Well, yeah. I mean, so, so like, 
clearly like we're in the health and wellness field and there, I do believe a lot of people are trying to do the best they can. Right. But that's literally not every single person. There are people who are like, I mean, they're sabotaging themselves. You know, they're not, they're not giving it the best effort they could do that. Mm -hmm. Like that does exist. I'm not saying it's a huge amount of people, but you know, you run into people here like you're really actually not trying (laughs) like at all. How do you approach that? So, okay. So I think what you're talking about is a little bit different from the people who decide like that. They just don't care. They don't want to try to get healthier. They don't want to change their eating habits. They don't want to move their body more, you know, stick it where the sun doesn't shine. And (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's who you're talking about. If you were talking about those people, I would say they get to go do whatever they want. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, There's nothing we can do about them. Uh, But what I hear you saying is the people who come to us as professionals and they say that they want help, they invest in help, and then they, they maybe don't do anything about it. And those people, again, I believe there is a reason uh, for that. And so my personal approach is to have an honest conversation and say, like, you've said, this is what you want. This is what I've recommended (laughs) to you. And you're not doing it. I mean, it's an uncomfortable conversation. I love that. Yes. I'm very nervous about it before it happens. Of course. Uh, (laughs) And yet, you know, it, those are the sessions where you get real about what somebody wants. And it's like, Hey, maybe you don't actually want this. And if that's the case, that's okay. Let's talk about what you do want. Let's connect to, you know, your core values. What, what do you want? Let's get you there. Or maybe they do want it, but they don't believe they can achieve it. And they, you know, and they've got these other barriers happening. Or, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind is I have this amazing client. Like she is a dream client. Everyone would love her. I got a bunch of those. I'm Uh so happy about it. Oh yeah, me too. Me too. And, you know, one of the things she wanted to change was she was drinking a lot of caffeine, like 10 shots of coffee a day. Yeah. Yeah. Into it. And in our work together, you know, we kept going every week. Because like, you know, let's swap out for decaf or let's try this. Let's try that. Like we tried all these strategies and she wasn't doing any of them. Yeah. And so finally it was like, look, you said this was important to you. What's going on here? And we had this, you know, deep conversation where we realized for her, she had stopped drinking alcohol three years ago and has in some ways replaced the caffeine with the alcohol from that emotional standpoint. And it was having all these impacts on her life. And so, you know, it, it, it allowed us to go, okay, like there's some neurobiology, there's some neurochemistry here that's leading to you, you know, drinking these things, drinking the the caffeine, uh, some addiction tendencies. And so let's treat this differently. And so, you know, we, we, for her, she said, I'm not ready to give it up because that was my recommendation. Like, let's, let's try one month without it and see what happens. I don't, I'm not usually into restriction like that, but yeah. in this case, it was kind of like a, a last case, last ditch effort. And she said, no, I'm not ready to do that, but I am ready to say no more caffeine after, you know, one. And then we moved it to noon and we're moving it slower and slower. And so I tell that story to illustrate that 
oftentimes I think people don't realize that they're sabotaging themselves that they're right. not doing what they want to do. And, or they're so busy beating themselves up for it already. And they don't have the self-compassion and you need the self-compassion as a foundation. That's why everyone I work with, you know, is, is also working on self-compassion because you need that as a foundation in order to take an honest look at your shortcomings and not feel unsafe um, because you're beating yourself up for them. Oh, I, I love that. You know, I, I just try to, I try to push people on some of this stuff as it comes to me. Just as I think like, I, I've been in my business 22 years yeah. and you see everything yeah. and you see all these wonderful dream clients, but you see different levels of people. And I, I'm very much lined up with, I'm like, man, most people and anything are just trying to live a good life. They're trying mm -hmm. to put food on the table, take care of their kids. You know, they want to have lots of choices in life and just, you know, the simple things, but it's interesting. You run up against some very interesting individuals who, and I think as a professional and any of the professionals that listen to this, maybe you're new, you're going to get all kinds, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right? You may have this very cheerful and I'm like that Cassie, and I think very similar, but you're going to run into some walls. That's just life. Yeah. You know, there's going to be some conflict. And I like that you, I'm the same way. I had those conversations. All right, listen, you said you wanted to do this, but the action is not following the, the words here. So yeah. where, what do you actually want type of thing? That's something that's almost as powerful as the person who just does everything. Well, it's like, you're yeah. almost getting deeper with the person when you're doing so. that. So I think that's interesting, but I wanted to transition with, um, what are some things that you see or the biggest misconceptions you see when people come to you? Because, you know, people will have a lot of information because the, uh, the internet. Oh, my God, yes. Right? So they come in there, they think they know a lot. <laughs> what are you seeing? What yeah. are some things people bring to you? My, so I will say my clients know a lot. You know, I work mm -hmm. with women who have paid thousands of dollars over their lifetime for weight loss coaches yeah. and trainers and, and gym memberships and, you know, programs and food and like, and they, they, they've, I know people who honest to God, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you know more than I do about this. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the practical side of like how many calories is in this or that right, or portion yeah. sizes, you know, like it's, it's funny. So yes, I think they, they do know a lot. Um, but the biggest misconception I think is one that if you live in a larger body, the only way to get healthy is to lose weight. And I have women come to me who their blood work is perfect, but their doctors are harping on them mm. to lose weight because of this perceived future risk. And they then become so obsessed with the number and losing weight that they're, they're not actually making consistently healthy choices yeah. that would set them up for success. So they're not, you know, joyfully moving their body and seeing the impact on their mental health of that so that it is sustainable and continues. They're thinking they're moving their body for weight loss and the scale's not moving, so may as well not. Yeah. So it's it just this, I see weight become a very problematic marker of success um, and kind of a be all end all. 
And the other thing is, and, and I think you talked about it in your series already as well, is, you know, willpower and self-control and this belief that we need more of it. And that's the answer. And, you know, this pill is going, this supplement is going to give me more willpower or, you know, this and that. And, and really, if willpower is the solution, you're destined to fail. For sure. Um, because, <laughs> yeah. Because willpower, you know, it's a construct in it's some totally ways. It's totally a construct, completely. And and, and yet, you know, it, it, even beyond that, it, that's like that white knuckle grin and bear it rather than instead of having a list of foods you can't have and you really want and having forbidden food syndrome and salivating over them, right? Um, an, another way, a better way is to cultivate the courage to trust yourself around food so that you can sit in front of that hamburger and go, you know, this is like the kind of hamburger I like. I like it when it has X, Y, Z on it. Yeah. So I'm not going to choose this hamburger today. I think I'll have the salad instead. You know, like you trust yourself around food, you know what you want, you know what your body needs, and you can make those choices. And for people out there who, you know, may be listening and saying like, I don't think this is possible for me, like to sit in front of a hamburger and not eat it. Right. Like that's not possible. I would say, yes, it is. It's just repairing your relationship with food, your relationship with yourself and your yes. relationship with your health so that you really understand what it takes to be healthy. And it's not an obsession with the number on the scale so that you can then eat with joy rather than eating to seek joy. Most definitely. You know, it's, it's funny. I, when I do speaking at conferences, most of my presentations now are about compassion. I just did one in July. It was all about creating, you know, a successful career through compassionate coaching practices. And I think what I've learned over the course of this two decade career in this is especially with professionals, you know, we're telling other people we're giving them advice or guiding them, but we often don't have the mechanisms to take care of ourselves. We're not investing in our psychosocial health and wellness. And I've seen that in clients, especially it's like when they want weight loss, I'm like, no, you didn't come to me for that. And they're like, no, I did. I said, no, you didn't. I was like, that's, that's not actually, this is an inefficient aspect of weight loss. If you're truly looking for that, but two, this is an emotional investment, whether you know it or not, this is a time you and I are having together to work through you know, things that are happening in your life, but they don't see it that way because they've been socialized into, I'm going to seek an exercise professional for weight loss. And it, it's like always the number one thing I want to lose weight. And I'm like, you didn't, that's not what you're here for. I don't do that. They're like, I love really? that. <laughs> like, I love that. Like, and that's no. my exact perspective and, and what I've wrestled with because I used to market myself as someone who helped people with emotional eating. Yeah. And what I found was I would talk to my clients. They'd be like, yeah, you know, you talk about emotional eating, but I didn't really realize I had a problem with emotional eating until after we were working together. Yeah. And I'm like, why number one, why the heck did you work with me? But number yeah. two, yeah. you know, uh, like it, it, people don't actually realize the exact problem that they're having or that they, the real issue they need to solve. 
And so I've found for myself, I have to market around weight loss and I have to talk about weight loss and how I do that differently and how, you know, we need to deal with food before you can even think about weight loss. And so, you know, in the same way, and yet here you heard my diatribe about weight. I have some opinions and thoughts and feelings about this subject, Mm. Uh, but that's what people want. That's what they want support for. And (laughs) so I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. I just try to be very honest with people like this is not what I do. And this is, and the contribution to weight loss from this would be so large. You wouldn't, you don't have the time for it. You don't have the amount of effort. And I mean, it just would be, a, this is not what this is for. And then I try to educate them about all the wonderful things that are happening inside their body from this. But you know, it's hard with people because people don't, can't look inside their body. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. see the, the amazing increase in cardiac output and stroke volume. That sounds dumb to people. They're like, what is that? I can't see that. I'm like, yeah, but it's like, it's good for you. (laughs) Increasing capillary density, you know, and lowering blood pressure. (laughs) It seems so dumb to people. They're like, what? That doesn't seem sexy. That's not sexy. But reality, that's the beauty. That's the most beautiful part of all these aspects is what's happening, the internal. And isn't that the great thing about emotions too? what's happening to you on the inside Mm -hmm. that you're growing as a human being? Mm -hmm. It's overcoming this overriding this mechanism of like the outside. Yeah. And and I'm I'm very aware of the fact that I look like a very I I am the stereotypical looking fitness person. I totally realize that. I look like a person on a poster or something like that. But it's even more incumbent upon someone like me to be understanding of this and to have instead of feeding into kind of this. And we'll have this episode kind of like Insta culture mm-hmm. related to that. We got some real hard hitting stuff coming up. That was towards the end. And how people like me create a lot of the people who have problems. Mm-hmm. They look like me, be mm-hmm. like me. No, 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 no. This this is a whole different situation for yeah. that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Your genetics, their genetics are not the same. <laughs> We're all very different. <laughs> our chemistry, you know, yeah. our trauma and stuff. And mm-hmm. I really think a lot of people, hopefully we're coming with mental health and you discuss that is, uh, you know, that's becoming one of the number one reasons why people exercise now is because of mental health. And it's really, yeah. and if you ask anybody and as professionals, any of you professionals out here, if you've been in there with someone for a long time, that's their time, you know, especially mm-hmm. parents, they will tell you, this is my time. I don't want to be interrupted by my kids. Nothing yep. <laughs> like yep. there's as much about their psychosocial, emotional health as it is their physical health. Like, leave me alone. This is my time with my trainer or whatever, or my yeah. health professional. And like, I want to focus on that with people mm-hmm. primarily. And then we'll get the external aspects as going. Yeah. And, and really, I think you get there by list, like by teaching people to listen to themselves, like what are the benefits you're noticing and also encouraging people to disconnect from weight as a marker of success. And it's okay for that to be important to you. It's okay to, you know, uh, to, um, like try to lose weight. All of the, pretty much all the women I work with are, you know, hoping to lose weight, working towards losing weight. And what I tell them is, I can guarantee that you will heal your relationship with food when you work with me. Cause I'm that good. Mike drop. You're just that good. I'm that good. <laughs> 
I can't guarantee you're going to lose weight because right. that's out of my control. Who can guarantee that? I that's mean, like seriously, it's <laughs> like, true. And, and especially women I work with over 50, we've got post-menopause going, you exactly. know, metabolic issues, maybe inflammatory conditions. And that, you know, and so what I can guarantee is that as long as you want to lose weight, because some people, when we're working together and they learn all of this about diet culture, they go, I'm going to opt out. I don't need to be smaller after all. Yeah. But when you're, when you are working to lose weight, I can guarantee that we will experiment and we will be curious about what works for your body and what doesn't work for your body. And, you know, and it, it, in as much as it will preserve your healthy relationship with food, I will help you do that. And, you know, as a registered dietitian with my certificate of training in adult and pediatric weight management, I'm qualified to do that. And yet I will only do it with nuance and with the understanding yes. that we're going to prioritize someone's relationship with food and their self above what it says on the scale. You know, that brought up something I wanted to, as we kind of go down towards in here, your education. How do you think? how effective has it been for you in preparing you to do your job versus the knowledge that people come to you with for that? And I, you know, I can't speak because I remember I was in college like 20 some years ago, but like, I wonder how the education has changed for dietitians or most dietitians in kind of this, the camp of no diet culture is bad more intuitive based. What is that like amongst your colleagues that specifically do what you do? So it is a potentially more controversial topic amongst dietitians really? than it is in health and wellness at large, um, is what I would say. <laughs> that because, was a very nice way of saying that. <laughs> because, you know, in so in breaking people up into various camps, you know, there's the 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 people who really are hardcore into what the research says. And, you know, I wouldn't call those people proponents of diet culture in, in any way, but they there is not a lot of good research around um intuitive eating and you know health at every size and some of these principles and their impact on health. Certainly no research to show it helps people lose weight because mm. that's not what they're trying to do. Right. 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 Uh, but even other markers of health, I think there just isn't enough studies and there's not enough research yet. So the very, you know, I would say like more conservative backed parties will, uh, will, you know, not favor those kinds of strategies necessarily. And then on the other side, is the people who see health at every size as a, a social justice and advocacy issue. Mm. And they believe that if you're, you know, supporting weight loss in any way that you are harming people and you are furthering systems of oppression, mm. which we can see the way diet culture oppresses people sure. and that's what your whole series is about. And so yep. And so, yeah, like I, I would say, you know, I could understand why they would feel that way. And yet I'm someone you've heard my nuance take already. I'm in the middle and, you know, it's an interesting place to be. There's a lot of us here. There really is. There's a lot of us here in the nuanced middle, just as many as there are at the outskirts. Like most but people, I, actually. I think so. <laughs> but I think what happens is the people on the outskirts are the large, the loudest, exactly. you know, and, yeah. and um, 
yeah. And it makes the rest of us scared to speak up. So <laughs> well, it's kind of hard. Like when you, if you say like a health at every size, someone's going to say, and, and have a good point that, well, someone who's 600 pounds, there's no health at that size. They're going to say, wow, that person is, these are going to just, you know, there's, I mean, even I think, okay, maybe health at most sizes. I don't know. Is this, there's certain sizes. It's like, there's not even living happening really for a person. You know, that seems like an extreme aspect. And, but then like, then we have people that have created weird shows around it and stuff and almost created strange um, followings of these extreme TLC. I think it's the extreme channel. Everything they do is about extremism. Yes. Little people, large people, big weird families. people, crazy big families. Yeah. <laughs> like, You're right. You just cracked the formula. I'd never right? thought about that before, but yeah. Yeah. That's literally, it's what it, and I think that's, it's, it make people get are interested in it. You know, it's mm -hmm. television viewing, but I think that's where I think our language is like, I, I'm definitely more in the camp of like health at every size, but I don't know. There's like a limit. It feels like, because at some point, if you can't walk, you're confined to a bed. I'm not sure what's healthy about that physically for that. So I think there'd be pushback on that or then those, and that becomes the big pushback. So I do think most people are like in the middle, like literally like the majority of people are like hanging out in the middle, like, Hey, you know, let's just be nice to each other and stuff like that. Those you know, are my people. We're dancing with Ellen. Yeah. You know, but it's, <laughs> So I think it's that's why I always think our our language is very interesting and how we can explain ourselves, because like someone could come at me with that. If I said health at every size and if someone said that to me, I mean, I'd be maybe I could take something positive from it. But I'd also be like, listen, if a person's 800 pounds, I mean, is I'm not sure that's the best way to be. You know, I'm not going to like disagree with them probably about it, you know, I'd be like, but maybe someone else has a different take. You know, I don't know, but I think how we explain things is really important because people are going to take shots, you know, and that's kind of what we do with the diet culture thing is like, listen, we're just presenting a large amount of information. Mm -hmm. And hey, generally our stance is this is a bad thing. Diet culture. It's like really bad. We're supportive of different people's bodies, things that nature. But I think also there's a reality that there are some very extreme states of being that are not good for people. I mean, it's definitely not good to be a raging racist. I mean, <laughs> like, that's not good. No. It's also not good to be so large that you have to be taken out of like, they have to blow open a wall to take you out of somewhere. There's parts of things that are just not good. And I think that's sometimes where like this toxic positivity comes in. where like, everything's good. I see mm -hmm. every, not everything's good all the time. Mm -hmm. There are some cases where it's like, this is actually detrimental to you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. well, I try yeah. to find the line that most things are good, but then there's our extreme situations that can be detrimental to people's impacting their whole being, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and again, I think it, it just comes back to like, there are things that are supportive and not, and not supportive. And as right. long as we don't moralize, being 600 or 800 pounds, like that's not morally good or bad. It's just maybe not very great for someone's organs, right? Like there's definitely you know, not great for someone's not supportive organs. for their overall health, but also are they asking my opinion? No, no, <laughs> no. 
But but see, there's the reality aspect that if somebody says it's fine to just to be this way, but if 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 somebody asks me, do you think this is a like being in this condition? I'm like, I would say this is uh this is devastating to your internal environment. Yeah. It just I'm not gonna tell them it's not. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's a, a reality to that. Right. Yeah, as a professional, I'm like, yes. You made the decision choices and obviously there's a lot of other factors, a lot of other factors, too. Mm -hmm. But if somebody asks my opinion about it, I'm not going to like be like, oh, it's fine for your internal inside of your body. I would just be telling a lie then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not be being truthful. And that's where I think we have the room for nuance and to say like, again, it's not morally good or bad. And yet there are things that are more helpful for your health and there are things that are less supportive of your health. Yeah. And, you know, if there are barriers to getting in the way of making those consistently healthy choices and you want to make them, that's when you come to a professional like us and we help people get over those barriers without shame and with all the compassion. And that's the beauty of of coaching, really. Yeah, I think it is the beauty of coaching, the the nuance. And I think that's, I mean, it's another conversation, (laughs) but... That's something we need to get better at as yes. a society to get back to more nuanced conversation. Yes. And not that it's this side or that side of things. It's like mm, there's some there are some valid points in different ways. It's also how you say it to people. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Too, it's yeah. like you're angry and telling somebody that something that is actually makes sense. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yep, exactly. Yes. You know, Yes. How we say things are really important. And uh, I appreciate you're very good at like navigating these things. You, you're a pro at this. I could tell. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And like I said, I mean, I have done all of the soul searching yeah. around weight and my stance and what I believe for myself. I mean, yeah. I have the genetics of someone who is curvy and, yeah. you know, like I'm not genetically teeny, I'm short and stout. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it, I, then I have my personal feelings and like, well, can I, as, as a woman who isn't super petite, you know, market my services for weight loss. And then there's the, the mental work around right. there. And like, what right. do I believe in? And am I living this? Am I, you know, in integrity with what I am teaching. And I can say, you know, yes to all of those things Yeah. Um, because I have a very nuanced understanding and, and like anyone who has strong opinions, I believe mine's right. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I like all the people, you know, I was like in any profession, I like a lot of my professionals to be a little messy. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't want them to be like even near perfect, close right. to perfect. I don't want them to follow things rigidly, oh, like, yeah. especially in fitness. It's, <laughs> I don't want I don't want anybody like that. I want I want, you know, the person I'm around to be a little messy, like, I like that. somewhat of a degenerate on some level, but well, responsible. I think you and I can be friends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just I don't you know, it's, you know, it's, I remember when I was first coming up in the business and I had just started learning about like, you know, people were like, you know, Tupperwareing it, you know, kind of the Tupperware people and, put, yes. you know, making everything. I was yes. like, oh, that can't be me. I was like. I mean, I'm going to go hit like a fondue fountain here. Probably. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I can't, 
I need to be somewhat immature about my whole deal. You know, it's like, yes, <laughs> I relatable anyways. Yeah. My strengths finder, you know, one of the, the second to last strength, they don't tell you their weaknesses. They're just not your strength is yeah. self-regulation. Yeah. So, you know, I'm totally with you. Right. About- I mean, and you'd be a little messy. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. You know, if they that. present to me as like, if some anybody who has it like together completely, I'm kind of avoiding that. Yeah. Like, like mostly have it together, but like, mm-hmm. you know, be a little messy, kind of right. immature a little, but you know, keep it together. If it's too together, that does, that seems off to me, actually. Mm-hmm. That means yeah. there's something else happening. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Right. Like the control is hiding. There's too much out. control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I don't want a lot. I, I, I like having control, but not all the control. Yeah. You know, I want, Want to like be off the wagon a little bit here and there. <laughs> like, you know, Love it. <laughs> I don't know. It's just what I'm doing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm not necessarily by choice, but it's the way. Things okay. Go. Okay. Well, we just learned <laughs> something. Yeah. <laughs> we just learned something. Cassie, uh, awesome uh, having you on. Uh, can you tell all the awesome people how they can connect with you? Yeah, you can go to CassieChristopher.net and you'll see at the top, there is a free worksheet. It is a debrief worksheet. So if you had an eating episode and you feel bad about it and you want to figure out how to stop it and not do it again, you go to that worksheet and I walk you through the exact steps you need so that you can actually learn from your eating episode and not, you know, beat yourself up and, and go to the all or nothing and keep doing it to get you right back on track the next time. So that's at CassieChristopher.net and you'll see the link to that at the top of the page. Love it. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, you just seem like a very joyful, fun person. And uh, that's always a plus. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I try. Joy is important. Joy is incredibly (laughs) important. Have a, you know, having a good time. I'm all about it. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, I appreciate you, your offering that you brought on here, which is a beautiful offering. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. You got it.